in Proverbs and, and Solomon being this great ruler himself and all of God's wisdom, kind of, kind of laying that out for us and what that looks like. We talked about being bold in our land, what our call is within whatever system we find ourselves in as Christians, and to be like lions, like Stephen, the Apostle Paul, not out of this adversarial relationship we have with our culture, but out of one of love and a passion to see them saved and a desire to see them inherit eternal life. Essentially, we also we looked at some consequences of what happens when a society departs from the righteousness of God's word and will. And it didn't look good, right? There was a lot of wickedness in the land and a lot of problems, and, and we see those things happening in a lot of cultures, ours included. But tonight in Proverbs 30, it's a really um, varied chapter, but just some great imagery in here. It starts out, I'll read chapter uh, 30, verse 1. The words of Agor, I think that's how we're going to say it tonight, Agor, son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Now that's from the English Standard Version. The Hebrew in this chapter is very difficult, and there's a lot of different interpretations, even as we get into this first thing. New King James says, the words of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance. This man declared to Ithniel, to Ithiel, to Ukal. So some of your Bibles may say something like that. It's a, it's a transliteration that makes it says, I'm weary, I'm weary. It can be either one, a proper name or this description of, of being exhausted. And there's a Jewish translation, another one that I found on a Jewish website, rabbinical type translation that says, the words of Agur, the son of Jacob, the prophecy, same word for oracle, the words of the man concerning says, God is with me, yea, God is with me, and I will be able. So those are all really different translations, but again, it comes back to this ancient um, interpretation and they really, there's no real consensus on that. I like the English Standard Version. I think it's really well documented. It's based on some great manuscripts. And so that's the kind of gist that we're going to take. But who is Agur, right? Who is Agor? And there's a debate to who this man is that wrote this chapter. Some think Agor was an ancient Eastern or Arab sage. Um, could be, there's some support for that. The Jewish tradition, the rabbinic tradition, says that Agor is another name for Solomon. It's essentially a description of him in a symbolic way. It, like Agor, the word can mean essentially the compiler, the collector of maxims. That word, son of Jacob, it can mean one who has spat out or despised. And those words, that word ethniel, that name, that proper name, that can also mean the words or instructions of God. So what they see in this is this is a part, this is a passage in which Solomon has written saying, I despise God's word, I spit them out, and I suffered the consequences for it. That's kind of the rabbinic tradition in this passage. But again, there's no real consensus about that. So we're not going to spend any more time on that just to let you know. It's an interesting thing. You can study that out for yourself. 
But whether it's an unknown nomadic Arab sage named Agur or a representation of Solomon in his humbled state, what we see are observations and truths regarding the nature and limitations of man compared to the nature and majesty of God. And that's what we're going to see throughout this chapter. There's also, this is really wild, there's an element of this chapter that is considered prophetic. That's why it says the prophecy or the oracle at the beginning. The, the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, do take this chapter as symbolically representing um, the nations that overthrew or um, basically uh, ruled Israel for a time. So we're going to see there's these passages that are going to say there's three things even four. And there's a number of those passages. There's, there's five sections of that in this, in this. And they look at those, each of those things representing one of these four kingdoms, Babylon, Media, and Persia, Greece, and Edom, the Edomites. King Herod, in the time of Jesus, was an Edomite, and he was ruling unjustly based on, you know, given authority by the Roman Empire. So that's how they interpret that. Just some fascinating information. I had never really heard that until I, until I started digging into it. But we just want to look at these practical applications, this symbolism, um, as they apply now, as they apply to our lives, and, and try to glean some truths out of that. But So we looked at that. So we, we see this guy who's weary. He's wearied himself out. And let's get down into verses 2 through 4. He says, Surely... I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. So what we see here is a man who has been humbled in their realization of their humanity. Someone confronted with their inherent inequality with God and their inability to attain Him, His wisdom or understanding on their own, in their own strength. And remember Job, if you've ever read through Job, he has that same kind of struggle at one point. I need someone to mediate for me because I can't, I can't attain to that. And that's kind of the same spirit we're seeing here. We do need a mediator. Again, this is something that Job, he had this, he says, I need someone to plead my case before God at one point. One who will descend to us. That's ascended, descended. Teach us and lead us. We, un, we as Christians, we read this. What's the thing, the first thing we say? What's his, what's his name? What's his son's name? And we start, <laughs> and we understand that to be that mediator, Jesus Christ, our teacher and advocate. And listen to what Jesus says in John 3, 13. He says, no one has ascended, there's that thing, ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, talking about himself. He claims to be this very mediator that this man is claiming to need. And then if we go even further, these other imagery, this other imagery that we get in this passage, Jesus did calm the wind and the sea. He walked on the sea. And Jesus, we're told, is not only 
his, the son's name, but it's the name above all names. And as Peter preached, it is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. That's his name. Now let's move down into Proverbs 35 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Now this echoes, uh, may have jogged your memory a little bit. There's a Psalm 18 that says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him, being the name, the, the words of King David. Now, when something is perfect or complete, to add to it only mars is perfection. Think of a, you know, drawing a mustache on the Mona Lisa. You're not making it better, you're, you're ruining it. When something reaches that, that point of perfection of which God's ha- word has, to add to it doesn't make it better, makes it worse. And this is a great challenge even now up here. I'm teaching this to not add something that would mar the perfection of God's word. When we make, as teachers, when we make our commentary, my commentary on the word, the points we want to make, the illustrations or stories, if we make that the focus instead of allowing his word to speak in its entirety. That's why we as a church take it very seriously that we do read the scripture. We use line by line, precept upon precept. That's what we're Calvary Chapel is based on. We take that really seriously, something that we need to be very careful of. But even a greater risk is adding to or taking away from God's commandments. And this is something the world would like to do. This is something perhaps other churches may be tempted to do. But listen to this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? We've heard that. That's the greatest commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But what if we were to say, you shall have no other gods before me unless that's part of your personal spiritual journey? (laughs) Or what if you just took out the word no? What if you just said, you shall have other gods before me? changing it that way it just takes one little thing that's what this is a warning of be careful be careful take it in its entirety what if instead of you shall not murder we were to say you shall not murder unless your own personal moral philosophy philosophy allows murder in certain circumstances (laughs) or what if you just took out the word not and you said, you shall murder. And you see how that changes God's word dramatically. Jesus tells us that he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. And that his words, all of his words, will never perish. Matthew five eighteen. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That iota and that dot is the smallest little figures in Jewish punctuation. It means not one little comma, not one little apostrophe will um, pass away until all is accomplished. 
And it's through faith and trusting in his word, applying it in its full, undiluted strength that its power and truth are proven. When we, water, when we water it down to try to fit our personal philosophies, it doesn't work. You know what I mean? It's like we get this, does anybody use this super concentrated detergent for your washing machine? <laughs> it's like, that's what we need. We need that super concentrate, full strength of God's word. Nothing added, nothing taken away. And that's the warning we have here. This is one of my favorite, this is a memory verse of mine, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, verses 7 through 9. It says, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Truth and commitment, honesty and a desire to lead a holy and balanced life. That's what this man is praying. Balanced in our needs and appetites. We've talked a lot in Proverbs about our appetites and keeping those appetites in check and being content with what God has provided. I love this guy because the whole, this whole thing is based on how he's pleasing the Lord. That's what he's basing this on, right? Don't give me too much because I don't want to deny you. I don't want to give your name. I don't want to deny your name. And don't give me too little because I don't want to, again, I don't want to give your name a bad name by stealing, by being, you know, um, in such a point of need that it would tempt me to do something um, illegal or immoral. When his honor is at stake, our needs and wants become secondary, and we can trust that if we make his name our priority, our needs are assured. This is something Jesus promises us. It's something we're promised all throughout Scripture, that if we seek first the kingdom of God, everything else we need will be added to us. And if we accept that in faith, this prayer will be answered. But again, I love it's not... It's not I determine how much I need or how much is too much or too little or all that. It's like, Lord, you determine that for me. Keep me in this place where I'm going to honor your name. And we saw that with the Apostle Paul as well when he said, I've learned how to be abased and I've learned how to prosper. I've learned how to be content with a lot and I've learned how to be content with a little. And that's that idea here. Proverbs 30 we're moving quick right there, right? Proverbs 30, 10 through 14, do not slander a servant to his master lest he curse you and you be held guilty. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those who t- whose teeth are swords whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor off the earth, the needy from among mankind. Another translation for that passage where it says, there are those, is there is a generation. There is a generation that acts like this, that is characterized this way. A generation that curses a filthy, prideful, degenerate generation. A generation that is slanderous and oppressive. 
And we know that this generation that is being talked about here does have a certain prophetic implication. Jesus warns us that in the last days, he uses this exact terminology. He says children will deliver over their parents, and parents will deliver over their children. And we see this kind of horrific situation that Jesus warns us about. Peter also tells us in 2 Peter 3, he says, scoffers will come in the last days following their own sinful desires. And all these things we see described in there, that's essentially what that is, right? Someone just following their own sinful desires. And the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Titus, Titus, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And he tells us simply, avoid such people. Now this generation, we're talking about that last generation, the last days. Here's something interesting though. Paul said he was in the last days. We've been in the last days ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, waiting for his return. This whole couple millennium is really the last days. Now we're closer than they were for sure, right? We're closer than they were, but these types of people, this generation has always existed from this time. These, this is, we were part of this generation. We were these, all these terrible things that Paul describes, these are things that are in every person's heart if you're not redeemed and changed by the Spirit of God. It's nothing to be prideful about that we're not included in that generation. It speaks of lineage, of being generated, right? A generation, something generated, or born into sin. That generation of Adam, fallen and lost, again, something we all were before being born or regenerated into his family. We took communion tonight. That's what that represents, that new blood, that new body, that new life that we can partake of. Not for our glory, but by his spirit and for his glory. Now, this next passage, shifting gears pretty, pretty abruptly in 15 and 16, the leech has two daughters. Give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire never says enough. So we have this picture of the leech, that parasitic creature. Does anybody everybody know what a leech is? The little thing you might find in a stagnant pond or something that lives, it's a parasite, lives on the blood of something else, and it it, it will suck someone dry to stay alive. And we're told that its offspring also cry out greedily for more and more and more. Sheol, the grave, which always has more room for the dead. The barren womb, which is always lacking what it truly desires. That dry land is always thirsty 
And we can re- all relate to that here, right? And we're such a dry, it can rain for a week straight, and two days later, it's like it hasn't rained in six months. That dry land that is always thirsty. And finally, the devouring fire, which is only extinguished when it's out of fuel or wind to drive it along. What I picture in this, the Lord is described as a consuming fire. God says that about himself even. He's a consuming fire. Now, we also often think of that in terms of God's judgment, I think. And, and it's used in that context, that God is a consuming fire, that he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And that's true. But there's also an aspect of God's nature that we're also told is related to refining and purifying, to consuming all of the worthless dross from our lives, like is done with gold or silver. Thankfully, he's never satisfied with leaving us in impurity or a partial redemption. God is not satisfied with a partial redemption of our life, a partial purity, because his love for us is total. We see that? His, he gave everything for us. He wants everything in return. And deserves everything in return. He's not fractional. He's not divided in his love for us. He's absolute in that. He proved that to us. His desire is to consume the things that would prevent us from reaching our full potential and blessing him. And that's what I see in this passage. These things, they all kind of lead up to a climax in their last thing, I think, that that fire that never says enough. And let's look at that in the in and kind of in, in a positive way of what God, he's not, he's not ever done with us. And sometimes that can feel kind of exhausting. It's like having a coach and you, you, know, you do your 40-yard dash or whatever, and he's like, I need just a couple seconds off of that. And you run it again and again and again. But the thing is, God will give us what we need to achieve those goals. That's what's different about an earthly coach. He, he allow, he'll, he'll just open that potential for us when we when we uh, open ourselves to that. Down in, uh, this is just a real quick verse in verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. That's just such a scary verse. This is a verse that every parent should memorize, right? Here, what'd you say to me? Read this. No. <laughs> And, you know, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. God takes the relationship with our parents and, and children, between parents and children, very seriously. Proverbs 30, 18 and 19 says, Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a serpent on a rock. The way of a ship on the high seas and the way of a man with a virgin. Or that word could be maiden. Another translation would say that these things amaze me. These things are too amazing for me to understand. Now, I really meditated on this, and there's some great Jewish interpretation of this that I think is really interesting. But when you really just, really just meditate on it and you say, the thing that these things have in common is their relationship with one another. Each of these things has a relationship to the object that's described. So the eagle needs the sky to soar and be an eagle, right? The serpent needs the rock. 
the ship needs the sea to sail upon. And a man needs a woman much in the same way. What is an eagle that cannot fly? Or a ship grounded on the beach? It kind of ceases to be a ship. It becomes a wreck, right? And what would we be as men without women? Lonely, incomplete, sterile, and unable to keep God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So just as there's this amazing interaction between these things and their environment, something fulfilling and beautiful, so is there something amazing and beautiful that happens between the intimate interaction between a man and a woman. We're told that there is a blessed spiritual union where two become one flesh, where they complete one another and help one another to become more than they themselves could be. That relationship, again, the sum being more than the parts individually. And that's what I see in that. It's a really amazing picture. I love it. It's so poetic. So Proverbs 30, 20. Now here, I don't think that there's any coincidence that this verse immediately follows that. I think that it flows into the same thing. It says in verse 20, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. We see the damage, when we've looked at this in other passages, the damage when that relationship we just described is not in accordance to God's will. It's interesting um, also um, that that oneness is true outside of marriage, but it's only blessed in the faithful, monogamous, heterosexual relationship ordained by him from the very beginning. Here, the adulteress seeks to hide her sin, to partake, to eat, but then pretend it's okay, right? That wiping her mouth, cleaning away the evidence of her sin, and, and, and trying to put on a good face, literally. Here's the thing, though. Her stomach is churning. That food is in her belly. It's churning. It's causing gas. And eventually, it's going to come out. So it is when we eat what is forbidden, that rotten fruit, and seek to hide it rather than abstain. And even, even if we have partaken to confess and repent and avail ourselves of God's grace, not to try to hide it because, again, it's going to come out, and it's going to come out in a way that you don't want it to. Proverbs 30 21 through 23. Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes a king. And a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. All these little sections are kind of like little riddles, aren't they? I love how they kind of talk about that. But simply... And what is, what is the relationship here? What do these things have in common? These are all things that are out of the natural order. And being unnatural, they're often related to sin. A slave may become king by killing his master. We've seen the, that in history before, right? A slave when he becomes a king. A fool, we're told in other passages of Proverbs, may steal or deceive or whatever to fill his belly 
Remember that verse, stolen water is sweet. That kind of idea of a fool filling himself in an ungodly way. A woman spurned may exact revenge for her pain and trauma on her new partner. That thing of an unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant may displace her mistress by seducing her husband. That's the oldest story in the book, right? All these guys with their nannies and this kind of thing we see in the news. And that's what that's talking about. And we're told that the earth and all creation groans under the weight of sin. And so our lives, out of order, cause us and others to tremble, to buckle under the weight of sin and its consequences. Proverbs 30, 24 through 28. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet is in king's palaces. Depending on your interpretation, those animals might be a little different in your Bible. I noticed there's a number of different animals that are kind of talked about in there. So, but... Here's the commonality. Again, what is the common thread with these, with these things that are being described? Well, they're small, but these small things take advantage of their situation, using their apparent inadequacies to prosper, using those things that we might perceive as a weakness as a strength. Instead of seeing their size or limitations as excuses to fail, they take what they have and make the best of it. Proverbs tells us over and over again about the value of honor and humility and in being content to do the work to be that which God has allowed and made us to be. You know, the ant's not trying to be something else. He's great at being an ant, right? (laughs) An ant can't be an elephant. He can't do those kind of things, but he's really good at what he's doing, and that's that's what it says. They're exceedingly wise, When we are content and in line with what God's will is for our lives, that makes us exceedingly wise because he's exceedingly wise. Does that make sense? So when when we are in line with God's will, when we assent to the things that he has for us, just like the ant's happy being an ant and these other animals are, are, are... suited to their environment, that makes them wise. That's why it says they are exceedingly wise. God's wisdom is wiser than our wisdom for ourselves. As, you know, A lot of us, I get caught up in this. I wish I could be this. I wish I could be that. But God says, that's not who you are. Don't try to be that. Be who I've made you to be, and that's the wisdom that we can apply in our life. These next things are kind of the opposite. Proverbs 30, 29 through 31. Three things are stately in their tread. Some might say majestic in your Bible. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. So just as we see those small things embracing their nature, again, this is kind of the flip side of that. So too should those who are called to positions of leadership 
roles of boldness and courage embrace their call. So a lion who fears his prey, who runs away from gazelles, is really not a lion, right? (laughs) He ceases to be a lion. A king who is afraid to fight for his people, who does not merit loyalty and has no army, is no king at all. For us to be kingly, we must vow fealty or loyalty to the one true king, the king who died and rose again, and who will someday return with his army and defeat the last enemy. What is that last enemy? What does the Bible tell us that last enemy is? Does anybody remember? Death. Death itself. I mean, imagine a world without death itself. That's the king that we're talking about, and that's who we serve. If we have that kind of understanding, it gives us boldness as well. Man, we've got one last section, and we are right on time. Praise God. Proverbs 30, 32, and 33. If you have been foolish exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. Now, I love this. I love that this is at the end of Proverbs because we've talked a lot about fools and the consequences of being foolish. A lot about letting your tongue get away from you or hurting others or hurting yourself or, or experience the consequences in your own life. And some of those passages seem... Um, They're true, they're real, but they can seem kind of hopeless taken just by themselves. And here we say, we don't have to be a fool. We don't have to suffer those consequences. We don't have to continue in that life. If we have done those things, if we've we've exalted ourselves, if we've devised evil, if we've sinned, put your hand on your mouth and I would say confess with your mouth. The the, example... Excuse me. The admonition to examine ourselves and, if need be, to correct ourselves. Man, God is always there for those opportunities. We never, it's never too late for us. This is such a hopeful verse. To be willing, as we saw earlier, to confess our sins and to repent. To not press, but to be pressed. To allow God to press us, to produce something good from us instead of pressing others to be pressed. To produce not blood and strife, but good works and good fruit that bring him glory. And that's a choice that God gives us. We don't have to be a fool. We don't have to be wicked. We don't have to be lost. God gives us that opportunity to come, from, to come before him and to receive from him that grace and forgiveness. So, Lord... That was a lot of content. Thank you for letting us get through all of that. I pray that we can go back in, in times of quiet and, and solitude and meditate on these things and really absorb them in a way that you have for us personally. I thank you for your word, Lord. Help us to be those who don't add to it or take away from it. Um, Lord, we do just want to please you with our life. And again, we lift up those who are sick, and particularly Pastor Sean tonight, and pray for his healing. And we thank you for our fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.